0: Howdy everybody, welcome to another edition of the Cowboys of the Osage podcast, brought to you by the Ben Johnson Cowboy Museum, located in historic downtown Pawhuska, Oklahoma. Hey, it's old Cody over here, and as always, I have Mr. Historian himself with me, Jimbo Snively. Hey Jimbo, how you doing today, and who do we have? Hey Cody
1: boy, I'm doing great, and uh, it's another great day in Osage, man, and you better shape up today, because we got some... The Long all Law with us today. We got Mr. Bart Perrier. And uh, Bart comes from a historic Osage County family. Uh, goes way back to 1800s. Uh, his great, great, great grandfather, Peter Perrier, was the uh, chief judge of the Osage Tribal Count Court. The first one here in Osage County. And uh, Bart got his start in the Osage County Sheriff's Department in 1997. And he is now a special ranger for the Texas and Southwestern Cattle Raisers Association, which was founded in 1877. They do a lot of good, and we're going to uh, get into all that, what he does on a daily basis, and talk about some of his interesting cases, and uh, and maybe even talk about an old case that's uh, of a lot of interest, people around here. So I think it'll be a good show. And, uh, Bart, welcome to the Cowboys of the
0: Old Sage podcast. Thank you for having me. You know, there's been a lot of real famous lawmen come from this area. When you think about it, you know, even the the first FBI agent was here, and he was a a a cowboy type lawman. And you know, you think about Wiley Haynes, and you think about, you know, there's just a whole bunch of it. You think about George Wayman. You think about Bob Dalton. Don't forget Bob Dalton. (laughs) You think about Bob Dalton. First chief of the Osage police right there, which later turned into the Dalton game. Right, you know? right. So, uh, yeah, it's good to have you today, Bart. Talk about some of this historic lawman stuff. And uh, we got another one with us right here. You know, he he's kind of a cowboy lawman himself. Right, right. I've roped steers with his dad. I've seen yep. him uh, wild cow milk, too. Yep, right. He didn't do much of the milking. <laughs> they made him do the mugging. Yeah, I bet. He's big enough. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, Bart, won't you tell us about your great, 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 three times great, three times great grandfather.
2: Well, um, Peter Perrier, he is um, referred to as Judge Perrier. He, like you said, he was later the first um, Osage tribal judge. Uh, and that was I think he was appointed in the 1880s at that point. Um, Before him, the family history is pretty vague. Obviously, there's a French twist um, to the name, and um, it's believed that his dad was a full-blood Frenchman and uh, came up and lived in the Missouri-Kansas area, and we really don't know that much about him. But uh, Peter himself, at the age of 30, uh, he lived, well, he was born in 1831, and he lived in the uh, Missouri-Kansas area it um, said that he was born on the, I'm going to mispronounce this, but the Maria Disagnus River, and it ties into its um, northeast, north-central Kansas. And he grew up in that area. Then when the Civil War broke out, he was married to a Catherine Kadrick. And uh, like all men during the Civil War, 13 years and up, you wouldn't have fought. So he was 30 years old at that time, and he entered uh, uh, the war as a Union soldier. He rode for the Kansas Cavalry Volunteers. And uh, it's crazy, we actually, my my grandparents, they've never thrown anything away. And um, we've got copies of his discharge papers. I just think that's that's fascinating. But uh, he fought in the Civil War, and uh, during the war, at some point, uh, he was widowed. His wife had died, uh, Catherine, and she had two kids. One of them was Napoleon, uh, Napoleon Perrier. They called him Nap Perrier. Would have been my grandpa's grandpa. Um, they sent them to live at the Osage Mission there in southeast Kansas at the Catholic, with the Catholic Church, and they were raised there until he got uh, until Peter got out of uh, the war. After the war, he remarried, married uh, Marianne Gilmore, and uh, I think her dad was a famous trader in that area, and um, there's a lot of history in that, a lot of Osage history in that area that's just unbelievable. And they up and moved and uh, moved down to Indian Territory to, um, you know, this is before statehood. This had been in the 18, uh, I believe, uh, they moved down here in the 18, late 60s, and... uh, they built a house that's still standing today and it's between skytook and uh, avant and at that point it was um, a show place uh, for its times you know in in those days obviously we didn't have highways and we didn't have routes of travel other than a day's ride north and 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 uh, markers like that and this was one of those places that people traveled by and i'm sure you know uh, stopped in and got resupplies and whatever else but this building like uh, this house it's a two-story sandstone house it's fascinating um, stairwell uh, uh, and it's still in good shape and uh, what, what amazed me was his uh, military shield was engraved on the staircase because i saw the we went and toured it once looked at it and it's it's a fascinating building or a fascinating structure But they lived there for a long time. And uh, then in the late 1880s was whenever he was appointed uh, the tribal chief. One of my cousins always joked and said the only reason he was appointed is because he was trilingual. He spoke fluent French, Osage, and English. And, uh, you know, they joked about that. But uh, he was a a man of his times, that's for sure. Sounded like it.
1: That would have been a a big advantage to to speak those three languages back then. You know,
2: and that was pre-statehood, that sure. was that was pre-Allotment uh, um, Act, uh, pre- I mean, it, it was it was definitely times that I don't think people can truly comprehend, you know, um, Indian Territory living in the Osage Nation. Yeah, it, right. It was a, you know, it had to be a very difficult time, but a much simpler time than where we're at nowadays, right. I would say. for sure.
0: Sounds like a good time to me. Yeah, you oh. you were born just a little bit too late, I think. <laughs> yeah, you're a that guy. He was a he was an interesting looking fella too. We'll get Lauren to, to post a pic on him, uh, you know, somewhere in this podcast, right. you'll know it when you yes. see him. Yeah, he he was a character, and and there was an article in the uh, Coffeeville,
2: uh, I think it's the Daily Eagle, they called it, and uh, they they interviewed him while he was the chief or the the judge Mm -hmm. and uh you know he was the first judge they were just now establishing the court system they were just now establishing you know the laws for what they're going to live by and uh, he talked about how they didn't have a jail jails were too expensive and what's funny to this day in law enforcement the sheriffs all complain about the jails because they're too expensive i mean it's funny how that hasn't changed but uh they didn't have a jail um if um, I think it said if you were found guilty for theft or up to manslaughter, it was uh, you know they, they, so many licks with the cane and, uh, and uh, murder. I mean, they had capital punishment punishment back then. If you were found guilty as murder, they tied you to a tree and shot the twelve men. And uh, uh, all other disputes were handled in the court. And uh, I think they had to go outside if it was a non-Indian versus an Indian. Kind of the same issues we're experiencing now with the McGirt rule here in Mm -hmm. Oklahoma. So
1: it's funny how it all kind of comes around again. Crazy times. Well, when you grew up growing up, did you want to be a cowboy or a lawman or what? Well,
2: in in the profession I'm in now, it's really hard for me to admit what I wanted to be. And my dad was a fireman. Right. So... Uh lawmen and firemen don't see eye to eye. It's the little funny uh, you know, jabs we gotta take at each other. So uh, I'll probably never hear the end of
0: this. Uh. must be a lot like a bull rider and a time event guy. Right, yeah, right. pretty much. Yeah, I guess. Just, just rub each other just a little bit. You'd think they did they'd get along good, but right. When I went to work at the
2: Sheriff's Office, my dad said I went to the dark side. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you know, I always wanted to be a fireman, and I grew up cowboying. I grew up junior rodeoing, and my dad was a fireman at Bartlesville, and uh, uh, firemen always have two jobs because they have so much time off, and uh, he ran a lot of yearlings, and uh, from the time I was about seven years old, we ran yearlings and took in cows, and, uh, and um, you know, I, I was my dad's day hand, so. Mm-hmm. Later in life, I won't do anything but touch a cow. Yeah, <laughs> you know? Right, sure. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I rodeoed up until I aged out at the junior rodeos and and
1: uh, went to work. Is that when you went to the sheriff's department first?
2: Uh, yeah, I worked for a couple of places. I worked for a train wreck service and whatever uh, for a couple of years. Then in uh, 97, I was 20 years old. Russell Cottle had just won the election. His first election, and um, I knew of Russell. I knew his son, and thought a lot of him. And uh, and uh, I remember, I you know decided I'm a very driven person. <laughs> when I get something in my head, that's what we're doing. This is uh, there's no distractions. And uh, whenever I finally committed to, I want to get in law enforcement because I always admired it. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever I decided it was time, then it was time. And unfortunately. <clears throat> this was before the sheriff's office was built at the out by the fairgrounds sure. the courthouse was where the sheriff's office was in a room not much bigger than this it seemed like and right next door was the old jail and uh it was july or, or it was uh, spring of 97 i went in there and applied and got an opportunity to talk to the sheriff and he said man i i'd like to hire you but you're not 21 and it's my policy that I'm only hiring 21-year-olds, and he had only been sheriff for about four months at that point, four or five months. So I respected that, but I was disappointed greatly, you know, Mm -hmm. because I was, by God, ready to do this. I left, and I I was just like, man, it's going to be a long nine months because I'm going to come back. And a few months later, I got a call from the sheriff's office and actually, let me back up. I was still working for Holcher, Holcher Services, and I was gone quite a bit. We worked train wrecks, and uh, so... And I worked on the road, so I still crashed at my mom and dad's house. And I remember I was home cleaning the stalls one day, and I think dad got off work and he came down there and he said, Sheriff's office has been calling for you. What'd you do? (laughs) He's kind of sat there and said, What do you mean? And he said, Did you apply there? You know, so yeah, he wasn't real excited. Uh, I got law enforcement to start with, and and, uh, later he. Obviously, thought it was the best thing I ever did, but uh,
1: at it that must point, have meant a lot to you, though, for you to remember what you were doing when you.
2: When oh, you got I, the remember,
1: call. I remember, I remember, because I, I sure
2: uh, tried not to disappoint my dad, and, Right. Uh, and that was one of those moments.
1: Uh, yeah. I
2: don't know, I don't know if he was going to like this, so mm-hmm. so I went to work. So Russell actually called me, uh, Sheriff Cottle did, and said, uh, "Hey, I'm going to hire you. Don't tell anyone how old you are." <laughs> I said, all right. So I went to work, and and uh, the rest is history, I guess. But it was uh, it was interesting times. Hey, let's backtrack
0: there for just a sec. <laughs> yes, sir. Train wrecks. Yeah. This couldn't get any more uh, romantic as far as cowboy <laughs> type <laughs> stuff. Tell us about working a train wreck. I worked um, for Holter
2: Services. At that time, they had 36 divisions across the uh, United States and Canada. And um, I worked out of Tulsa, and that was the training division. And uh, it was pretty interesting. Um, The worst thing about it is trains typically derail in extreme conditions, extreme cold, extreme wet, extreme dry. So you're usually in the worst elements. But uh, we was on call 24-7 and um, we had uh, heavy equipment. You know, uh, we had uh, uh, 583 side booms and 977 loaders and uh, and um, we went and re-railed cars or cleared tracks, cleared the, uh, you know, we would completely clear the track so the railroad could come in and lay down uh, panel rail, which was sections of railroad track that was already put together. To get the track back going, because when the when a train derails, every minute that that track is down, they're losing you know a lot of money because the trains
0: have to stop. It's tight security too when a train it's derails. T- yeah, isn't yeah. It Yeah,
2: it's 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 its own thing because it's own, their own right of way. They own the land. They own the tracks. They own the equipment. It's theirs. It's their baby. So we would uh, we'd get a call and uh, and respond. You know, uh, you know, uh, we'd have a convoy of ten or twelve trucks. Uh, wide loads. We was permitted. Ran around the clock. Um, you know, it was it was interesting. I try. I worked a train derailment in every state west of the Mississippi except the Dakotas. All right, a, a train derailment or a, t- a train project of some sort.
1: Do they have a lot of train derailments All back the then? Time. I mean, Well, You don't still, hear about it. Mean,
2: still much. do. Well, it's it's their own equipment right right away so unless there's casualties you don't even see it you don't even hear about it because it's really not news it's isolated Mm -hmm. and uh, you know we'd uh, I remember uh, once we flew out to uh, La Crosse, Wisconsin uh, I caught a flight in Tulsa and we flew uh, we had our own private jet so when I say I caught a flight I went and got in our private jet that flew to Tulsa to pick us up and then we flew to Des Moines, Iowa and picked up a few more people and flew to Lacrosse, Wisconsin, right on the Mississippi River. The Mississippi River is no bigger than Bird Creek when you get that far mm-hmm, north. Mm-hmm. And this derailment was right on Lacrosse, Wisconsin, La Crescent, Minnesota, right on the border. And it was nasty, snow, cold right when you get out you got the element of the polar bear you knew you'd went north oh my goodness and um that was one of those i watched the the sun come up that day i watched the sun go down i watched the sun come up i watched the sun go down before we went in talking about exhausted you'd fall asleep just standing up almost i mean it was it was hazardous but uh, but it was under the umbrella of an emergency you know so you could and we was the relief crew so we kept relieving crews that was there and they would go to the hotel for eight hours because they had already been there before we'd been there you know a day and it was unbelievable you know and they, but it, they took care of you it was a lot of fun you know, it sound like a pretty good gig
1: to me, yeah, Cody. Yeah. jetting on. You just yeah, sat around waiting for train to run off around The remedy. issue
2: was I was 19 years old and I was a grunt. Right. So okay. you're dragging mats, dragging, right. you know, dragging timbers right. and hooking. You know, they had these 504 hooks is what they called them. They weighed like 80 pounds, just the hook. You know, hook to a cable that big, winch cable, you know, and... Uh, and, you know, rip and tear and, and grab and, you know, saw some fascinating things, you know. Saw two trains hit head on, saw the aftermath up around Topeka. That was, that was you know, unreal. No, Situations like that. <laughs> you, know, you only have an engineer and a conductor in each train. Ooh. But then we found extra. Hoboes.
0: People. Yeah, they weren't supposed to be on. It wasn't supposed to be on there. Hmm. Yeah. So you went to Pinkerton. You're no. more of a. Hey, you go grab that guy. Yeah, you know, well, I was I was what I was being paid for. <laughs> <laughs> when you got hired there with the with the sheriff department, what was your first duties, Bart? Oh, I was Dark? a jailer. Uh, I was a
2: jailer and uh this was the old jail and um I know there's a lot of people that's probably seen the old jail on the outside, and I know there's a lot of people seen the old jail on the inside. And we got and, the doors uh, from the old jail right in you there. You do, you do. And uh, if I recall, you got two different sets of doors. One was the third floor that was never used while I was there. Third floor of the old jail, or the top floor, accounting the, the basement would be the fourth floor. Um, it was like a cage, and those were the original territory gels, uh, cells. And uh, I don't think the top of the cage was five foot ten. So I can't imagine. I mean, you literally was being put in a cage. And that's why if you look at your doors, you have displayed one of them's a lot shorter. That's that cage I'm talking about. The other doors was the isolation jail cell doors. And they were, I remember my first day walking in there. This is 1997 and I felt like it was 1897 because uh, the jail was built you know, in the 1800s. They hadn't upgraded a whole lot. The upgrade had been pretty minor, (laughs) if any. And, um, you know, we didn't have computers. It's unbelievable, really. We didn't have computers. Dispatch had the OLED system. They had a computer. Um, uh, You've hand-wrote reports. Um, The jail had no air conditioning. I mean, in the back, they had... They ended up bricking up the windows years later because... People kept sawing out and escaping, mm-hmm. so they just bricked the window shut, but they left out like six bricks in, in the middle. And that's where year-round air flowed through. Winter, summer, that didn't matter. That air was coming through. And they uh, did have a heating system, so we had ductwork work running back there for heat in the winter, but in the summer there was no air conditioning talking about nasty.
1: <laughs> I'm uh, I'm real claustrophobic. What do you do when somebody comes in and It's claustrophobic and they say, I can't go in there. Do you just throw them in there anyway? You go in there. I believe I can kick a hole in the wall because <laughs> I, I just can't couldn't be in there. So I remember the walls. Years and
2: years of cigarette smoke. Right. Because this was the time when you still smoke in a restaurant, you know? So the inmates couldn't smoke, but the trustees and everyone else smoked. And... uh And the years of cigarette smoke where the trust or the inmates did smoke back then, I'm sure. And, uh, you know, the trustees cleaned every day. Right. But you can only clean so much. And I can remember touching that wall. And when you'd pull off the wall, it was (laughs) a where you just stuck to the (laughs) nicotine. It was unbelievable. It really was. It was it was interesting, say the least.
0: (laughs) I rode on an airplane just a while back. Still had the the ashtray deal in the in the in the arm of it. Really? Yeah. That must have been an old
1: plane. I guess so. I wouldn't
0: have I'd have got off of that airplane. <laughs> I think there's still a lot of old planes still in commission, Jimbo. Yeah, they just put a they just put a deal over the armrest where you couldn't open the ashtray part, but right. it was definitely right. an ashtray in the in the armrest of that airplane at one he's, time. He's flying on the budget flights. Yeah. Um, did it have a propeller or was it a jet? I don't dry, I don't fly on private jets like these guys. <laughs> Man.
1: So, you move, you start out. Why does everybody start out as a jailer? That's just the low man.
2: I think everyone needs to. I yeah. had a guy tell me, he knew my family, and he told me, he said, You'll be a good cop one of these days. He goes, You just got to figure out what a bad guy is. Yeah. Because it's very true. I mean, I don't think I'd ever really met a bad guy. You know, uh, I mean, you have
1: yeah.
2: rough people, mm-hmm. you got your rough cowboys, and whatever, but I mean, a bad guy. Yeah, really. And, uh, you know, uh, the jails are. Um, very important part of the justice system, but it's a, uh, it's uh it's rough. You know, uh, those inmates spend every day trying to find a way to manipulate people. They've got all day to think. They got about all it, okay. day to think about escapes. Think about whatever they want to do. So, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's definitely interesting.
0: One guy was telling me the other day, I don't hang around that many criminals, but this one <laughs> is, is actually a buddy of mine. He said that when they were in jail, they would how they would uh, smoke contraband in there after they got it in. He didn't tell me how they smuggled it, but he told me <laughs> how they smoked it. He said the toilets have some sort of vacuum system. When you, va- when you flush them, they can uh, blow the smoke down the toilet and it just sucks wow. it right down it. So No,
2: it's, it's fascinating. Some of the most talented artists I've ever seen in my life. Are incarcerated yep. um some of the artwork that they've done, and the smallest amount I remember in that old jail there was a inmate uh, that would uh take soap and uh work it like clay and he would uh, get cocoa they'd smuggle it in cocoa from the j- from the kitchen or whatever, and he would turn it brown with cocoa or uh ash he'd burn toilet paper and uh, and mix it in and and made so many uh, made pots and made uh, and it it was just fascinating and you know and he was working with nothing you know and uh, it's just very uh, it's uh, I think people find uh, themselves in those situations they find their strengths you know or find a, a way to get through it so
0: you know way back when when this was Indian Territory Didn't you have to be a federal marshal out of Fort Smith to be able to come do any kind of uh, manhunting or anything like that? Think about True Grit.
2: That's based off of the times. You know, Fort Smith, um, where the uh, the U.S. Marshal, I'm going to say this wrong, but it was the U.S. Marshals, like Western District, uh, they covered the criminal jurisdiction for Indian Territory. Uh, so the U.S. Marshals would come out of Fort Smith. Judge Isaac Parker was the judge, the hanging judge, they called him. And, uh, you know, they would go um, find, you know, whatever, the murders and whatever else, then take them back. And that's actually the Dalton's oldest brother was the U.S. Marshal for the for um, Judge Parker. I, I, Frank, I think it mm-hmm. was his name, Frank Dalton. And, uh, and he was killed sure. over by... Uh, east of tulsa um i think that's where it was um I think arrested a guy and you know and think about that mm-hmm. you arrest a guy and you're gonna have to ride horseback with them for several days mm-hmm. so you sleep with them you feed them you you, you know you're with them at all times so what, i think he turned his back and somehow the
1: i think bob and maybe another brother was with him when that happened i believe i read that
2: i know bob and them went and found the killer and killed him yeah And that was before they were marshals. But, yeah, the territory marshals is what they were. You know, uh, uh, some of the most iconic ones is like Bass Reeves, which he was Mm -hmm. uh, African-American and uh, one of the most uh, recognized and respected marshals of its time. And uh, they're building a museum supposedly there in Fort Smith to honor the U.S. marshals, the territory marshals and all that. But, yes, to answer your question, you had your tribal police back then. But then you had your federal U.S. marshals that would come in and deal with the white people and whatever else, the the non natives, or they would even try the natives if it was on uh, outside of the tribal jurisdictions.
0: Yeah, I've I always, always just wondered how that worked. For sure, I thought that's how it worked, but I wasn't sure. It was just a bunch of cowboy marshals out of Fort Smith. Yep. If they were on a manhunt for some and bank was, bank was, robbers or anything, there um, wasn't a lot of them. I mean. They
2: didn't. Yeah. They didn't go in ten deep. It was that's one why or there two. were so many outlaws here. That exactly. was a pretty good place to
0: exactly. stay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they'd all hide here. You hear, yeah. you hear of you know caves back in ranches around here with oh, Jesse yeah. James's name carved in the side and Frank James and Dalton the, Brothers, the, the Dalton something. Brothers. I think Bonnie and Clyde actually hit out here a little bit. Uh, yeah, uh, this has always been a natural magnet yes well it's the lawless for uh, criminals to come hide Yep. there there was very little law
2: and uh, people are always going to gravitate and you know this is something we're dealing with nowadays um, people gravitate to the areas that are less policed you know so uh, you know, there's places that's trying to defund the police and they will soon figure out why the police are there I you think know, they're we, already starting to figure it out I think you're right <laughs> you know uh
0: when did you become a detective Bart?
2: um I became a detective It's probably two thousand ten in that area um I went to the in ninety eight once I turned twenty one they commissioned me as a de, as a deputy and I was a civil deputy. I had to go serve evictions and civil process. then I went to just a field deputy. then I became a canine deputy I had a dog at one point and um then field sergeant, and just kept going up. Then I became an investigator, and uh, that's where I ended at the Osage County Sheriff's Office as a lieutenant. Uh, probably, uh, I think, well, I'd say it was mid-2000s when I became an investigator. I left there in 2011 to go to work at Cattle Raisers, so I was an investigator at that point.
1: How'd you get that job in with the Texas outfit? I,
2: it's it's still a miracle I'm employed there. Just to be honest, you know, uh, I didn't apply, wasn't looking to leave. Um, I had goals I was setting for at the sheriff's office, and uh, um, the ranger that had just left that position, the special ranger, his name was John Cummings, and I'd worked a few cases with him, and I became his local liaison. If he needed something, he called me. And uh, he called me one day and said, hey, uh, did you apply at the cattle raisers? I said, no. I said, he said, uh, well, you know I left. I said, yes, sir. And he goes, well, your name's surfacing down there. So I didn't apply. He goes, well, you should. I said, well, John, you're leaving. How, how's it that good of a job if you're mm-hmm. leaving? You know, he goes, no, I'm telling you, it's a good job. And uh, just such a small world. The director at that point, his name was Larry Gray. He was uh, dealing with a... a, a a guy that was seeking employment once he retires down in texas uh, he worked at north richland hills pd and larry one day mentioned to him he goes hey you know he won from oklahoma he goes we're looking for a ranger up there and he goes especially in the osage county area well this officer just happened to be best friends with joe slinkard which joe his dad was a ranger for us at one point uh, for cattle raisers up here and uh but uh, Joe, at that point, was a officer for North Richland Hills PD, so he knew this guy that was applying. So he calls Joe, and Joe said, threw my name down. That's how it started. So, you know, I've always said, this world is who you know, not necessarily what you know. Oh, and sure. uh, that's what got my name into that. Then the more they dug, the less I showed interest. So the more they dug, the more they pursued, and they finally talked me into applying. And it's mm-hmm. been a... Heck of a ride, I'll say you that.
1: You do a lot more than
2: just chase rustlers. We'll work anything agriculture. Yeah. Statutorily, we're commissioned with OSBI. So uh, we, uh, um, by statute, I think there's, uh, they can have 15 of us commissioned, and we're not paid by the state of Oklahoma or Texas. We're paid by the uh, Texas Southwest Cattle Raisers, which is a private entity. And um, uh, we can work anything, like I said, agriculture, you know, feed trucks, um, property crimes of that sort but the bread and butter and the foundation of the association is cattle theft and it's still the primary function
1: when i was a kid they used to talk about the brand inspectors now they called us
2: inspectors okay. at that point okay. uh, now we're called special rangers okay. so the inspector that they referred to then like raymond right. russell right. he was right. an inspector up here in osage county uh, and i already said jerry uh, uh, Joe. jd Slinkard. yeah jd uh, you know he was at one point and yep. uh so they've, they've, there's been some, some iconic guys in this. There's been iconic guys go through our association. Um, I mean, uh, there's the rich history. There's many. Back in 1877, you want me to tell you a brief synopsis of the association? Yeah, I'd like to know all about this association. Um, the Texas Southwest Cattle Raisers Association. Uh, the TSCRA um, was established in 1877 in Graham, Texas, and it was established by 40 ranchers. They got around a, a tree and said, uh, had a meeting and said, we have to do something to combat cattle theft. This is uh, after the Civil War. Cattle drives were becoming very big and they were taking cattle from Texas to the railheads in Kansas, traveling through Indian Territory. And uh, cattle theft was just uh, a monster at that point. So they got together and uh, created uh, uh, an association that developed into TSCRA. Um, but at that point, they hired Texas Rangers to be our enforcers. And they established, They, you know, we had guys in Kansas City, Oklahoma City, uh, Abilene, had them in Texas, had them everywhere at the, rail, at the rail yards. They'd be up there inspecting cattle. And if they see cattle come through with the Texas brand, and the Texas owner didn't sell it; they'd pull it off, and that's how they started that. And uh, it, it became a monstrous um, change for the for the cattle raiser. You know, I mean, there was actually a little bit of enforcement in a lawless time. You know, and uh, the association, you know. They they rocked along and uh, obviously developed into what we are now. But what always really amazes me is it was established a uh, hundred and almost forty five years ago, and we still basically have the same principles now as we did then. Obviously, technology has changed sure. how we do it, but it's the same same uh, purpose, you know, for the exi- existence.
1: So. If somebody stole some saddles or something, you'd get involved with that. Can yes, or could, could yes, yeah. Yes, yep. is there a lot of rustling go still goes on? <clears throat>
2: um, cattle rustling all follows the market price. Okay, if market's up, your cattle are going to get stolen. It's uh, mm-hmm. I always re- compare it to uh, oil field. A lot of people can relate to the oil field. When copper's high, read a cable is stolen daily. Right. When copper's low, no one steals read a cable. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. When cattle's high, uh, they're they're stolen by the thousands. I mean. Uh, it's really unbelievable how many cattle thefts there truly are, and there's a lot of victims don't really think their cattle are stolen. And you know, when they initially call me, they just think that, you know, they've gotten out or something. Then we start digging and stirring. And the next thing you know, uh, we've uh, you know, most of these cattle theft investigations turn into a monstrous investigation. You know. Um, this theft turns to this. Then, when you start finding cell records and you start developing it, you know, they've been stealing for nine months or a year and a half, and we just now caught them. And a lot of times, people I mean, I've had many victims that didn't even know they're victimized until I called, called called, them and said, I found your cow to sell, and mm-hmm. she's got this brand on her. And like, Oh my, I thought we lost her, you know, I thought she died or something.
1: I'm guessing nowadays, a lot of these thefts and... the <laughs> out in the, on the ranches is drug related. Is that right?
2: I personally believe every crime is drug related. So definitely cattle theft is tied to the same thing. Um, I've uh, encountered a couple of professional thieves. There was one guy that uh, I, I arrested uh, or in, with some other uh, agencies that worked some other investigations and, and I'd cleared up three or four of our previous thefts that he had done and he had, his M.O. was the same. Uh, he drove around. He had a gambling addiction. He didn't have a drug addiction. But uh, <laughs> he uh, he drove around and uh, would uh, find like an 80 or 120 or 160-acre place that has some cows and barn facilities. Pinned by the road. Pinned by the road <laughs> with the stock trailer sitting there.
1: Right. There you go.
2: He stole everything you had. He'd take your stock trailer load up your cattle and haul them and sell. The and one thing that fascinated me was he said uh, he wouldn't steal branded cattle um, because of the possibility of tracking it back. And if he did steal in the middle of the night, they were branded, he'd go down the road a little ways, get out and start looking at them. And if he saw brands, he'd kick them out. Because many times these victims said, well, we found our cows. Uh, they were just three miles down
1: the road. Well, that, who doesn't brand their cattle, though?
2: Let's say who does brand their cattle. Really? Yeah, it's uh, it's unreal. Um, the The times have changed, and people just really don't brand cattle like they should. Is that right? Oh. Yeah. Did you know that? I can't I can't tell you how many times I get a call that someone's missing three black cows, black Angus cross cows, and they got a yellow YTX ear tag in their ear. Yeah. I don't know how I'm gonna find your black cow that has no identifiers except that yellow I takes ear tag in her hair that's already so removed.
1: So it's know? just easier for people to put a ear tag in the ear than it is to mess with branding them.
2: I think so. And you know, it's one of those I understand not selling your calves at because you know, if you sell your calf at five hundred pounds, you don't mm-hmm. want a fresh brand on it. I understand right. that. because then uh, you know, the buyer they're gonna knock you on that mm-hmm. or whatever theoretically. But I always say if you uh, if if that animal um If that reproductive animal is going to stay on your place, reproductive meaning bull or cow, you need to have an identifier on it. You know, it's no different than a gun. It's no different than a vehicle. If you want that item found, it has to have a unique identifier, and that's what a brand is. You know, and there's other ways. I mean, nowadays with the um, uh, registered cattle, you, you know, you have some that are tattooed, and that's great. But still, you can't beat a
1: brand. Yeah, I, I just thought everybody branded their calves. <laughs>
0: what percentage of these uh, <clears throat> dirty, rotten thieves are people that work for these ranches or have they work for the ranches?
2: seems like a lot of them, a lot of them uh, have ties to the victims. Unfortunately, I tell a lot of victims, you know, when I'm first working their case, uh, you know, this looks like someone knows, knows your pattern, knows what you do, knows uh uh what you have going on they usually use their own facilities and uh so most of the time they're connected uh now the guy i was just telling you a story about he never stole from anybody he knew he drove around literally and randomly just found people and uh and he told me when we arrested him he was a very sincere guy he was an honest criminal mm-hmm. once you arrest him they confess right you know and he told me he said hey i'm going to tell you a place uh uh, out on Highway 16, uh, north side of the road, whatever else. He goes, uh, I've been looking at their place. Tell them to go move their cows. He goes, because huh. they're just asking to get them stolen. Yeah. You know, and huh. I just thought that was... But one thing that amazed me about that was when I went in there and sat down and introduced myself to him, told him who I worked for. He goes, oh, I know you guys. You all have been chasing me since the 80s. I said, I haven't been chasing you since the 80s. I was in grade school in the 80s, yeah. so. <laughs> so... Well, uh, as...
1: And- these grocery store inflation and meat gets more expensive. Do you think you'll see more people just butcher one out in the pasture? And
2: we have that a lot too. Um, we, unfortunately, you know, we, we have that. Um, and, uh, you know, I've they'll cut off just a hind quarter and leave half a yeah, cow that's and, bad. you know, and it, it
1: gets tough, you know, but, um, that, that happens, that happens. you know, and it's, Back in the old days, they used to talk about having a running iron. You're talking about those brand cattle. They'd have a running iron that they could alter a brand with, you know. But I have a
2: running iron in my shop. Do you? Yep. Yeah, back then, they I always heard that in the old days, if you was caught with a running iron, they'd hang you. I mean, it was a hanging offense if you had a running iron. Because why do you have a running iron? Right. Sure. You no. Know? And uh, manipulate brands and and, and and you know, still to this day, I've worked a couple of cases where someone manipulated a brand. Yeah. Um. Fortunately, dumb criminals make smart cops. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, there's there's times that you know uh, a fresh brand in the cell barns, red flag. Sure. You know, so uh, uh,
1: they they still try to do the same things they've always done. It's if if somebody sells or buys some cattle accidentally at the sale, and then you find out they're stolen, they you have to give them back whatever. Are they just out the money, or is there some reimbursement?
2: The court process. Um, If they're not branded, the rancher's not getting those cattle back, even if we get a confession. Really? Yeah, because uh, they bought them in a legal third-party sale, and uh, it's a harder process. You're creating more victims is the way we look at it. Now, if they're registered cattle, if they're unique, if they're specialized, uh, they can get them back. I worked uh, a theft uh, for a prominent producer in central um, Oklahoma. He ran a Hereford operation, and they had two different thefts. Uh, two weeks apart, still in the registered Herefords. And, uh, you know, he had some bull calves that was fifty, sixty dollars 60000 prospects. I mean, and he's got documentation to support that these are what they're going to sell for. And um, by the time I recovered them, they went through a sale bar in southern Oklahoma. And by the time I recovered them, uh, those bull calves are steer calves. So they lost a fifty thousand dollar valued calf bull calf prospect and got back, uh, you know, eight hundred dollar steer calf. You know, and that stuff like that's pretty difficult, you know, for the victims. But, you know, uh, they were made whole in that case, and yeah. you know, so it was a successful case. But it's uh, it's difficult for the victims for sure, and and for the buyers. I yeah. mean, when they you know buy cattle and yeah.
0: and they come back stolen. Yep. Well, how in the world do you get this organization that you work for? To protect your cattle, or do you just protect all um, livestock? We'll work for anybody, but we uh, we are a membership based
2: organization. There's eighteen thousand members in the association in Texas and Oklahoma, and uh, um, members are a priority. They pay the bills, and um, you know, like I said, we don't receive a, a penny of uh, state or, or federal funding. I mean, it's fully private, and it's been private it's th- the entire time, and it will always be. Um, You know, you could somewhat say that's probably why we've lasted 145 years. It's because it's been ran by the people
0: that want to run it, you know. It seems really specialized where your average sheriff, you know, they got a million things going and they're not going to sit there and investigate this one crime possibly like it needs to be investigated. Mm -hmm. Well, to, to sum that up and...
2: I came from sheriff's office, so I fully understand the situation they was in. Whenever I left the sheriff's office, I was working 36 cases. I'll never forget this. I had 36 investigations I was working. You you close two out, you gain three the next day. You never get ahead. You only work what's hot, and this is the unfortunate issue with law enforcement across the nation. They're overworked. There's more crimes than you can work, so only certain cases really get dealt with in the in the detail that it needs. And, um, when I went to work at the cattle raisers in February, I worked 36 cases that year, which I was able to recover, solve, close out almost every case. And I'm not saying we solve every case, but I will tell you, we solve most of them, you know, and, uh, call it cocky or whatever. Mm-hmm. we we, we do a job and we do the job the best we can, you know, and if there's something to work with, we usually you know, eventually come out with something, you know. Um, Unfortunately, sometimes it's down the road when we figure out what happened and, you know, and you can still make a case on it, but the victims don't get their property back. But, uh, uh, so that's the problem. That's what allows us to specialize in the investigation, you know, and that's that's the strength of the whole association.
1: Uh, We mentioned branding your cattle, but what else can a, for people out there that's got cattle, what else can they do to protect themselves? um brand your cattle identify them or nothing else in
2: oklahoma we don't do a lot of ear notches mm-hmm. you know uh, if when i walk across the catwalk down oklahoma city stockyards and i look out there and these cattle all got their head up these texas cattle have a swallow fork in their left ear and a, you know underbit on the right or something i can see those some ears. of them
1: don't really have a ear left exactly seen those, some you
2: of those know. you know ear notches yeah, yeah pretty much have removed the ear but uh, uh but you can see those cattle mm-hmm. you know you can see them and identify them and i just think you know we don't utilize that enough in oklahoma um but you know a unique identifier like i said is all that we have to have but a brand is prima facie evidence in the state of oklahoma for ownership so um you know that that full of fork is what opens the door for us to get into that investigation to you know and nowadays with dna we're able to do a lot with dna uh, but to answer your question you need to identify everything um if you've got a welder write down the serial number your tractor, write down the pin number. Trailers, write down the the pin number, product identification number. Because um, when it's stolen, you got to be able to enter that in DNCIC. And so many times, people don't have the the numbers. You know, that's good advice.
0: I think I'll go home and write down some serial numbers. I don't know. I've been hearing some people. Uh, they put these Apple. Air tags on their trailers and things now, so mm-hmm. if someone steals it, they can at least track it down. Yep. Do they have anything like that that microchip cattle that you can wave I, some sort of wand over and it tells you? I think the owner I think eventually,
2: kind of like uh, what you do with pets. You know, eventually something like that will happen. The only thing is, you're talking about millions of head. Compared to pets, you know, uh, if you've got one or two little lap dogs, that's one thing you can you can put a chip in them. But if you've got you know seventy five hundred head, I mean,
1: and then no, you have to document feasible. that. So you know, exactly. wrap it down exactly. You
2: know. you know, there's a lot of things out there. The RFI tags yeah. are becoming really popular, and uh, and you know, they all have their purpose. And I understand where they're pushing, but at the end of the day. You will, you will not get me to say anything other than brand your cattle because yeah. that's that's the identification, you know.
0: Let's go back a little bit in your career from today. So I know I, I probably don't have this correct, Jimbo, but it's halfway correct. Were you the last lead investigator of the Mullendore murder case? I guess you say that.
1: What's the status on that case?
0: Well,
2: um, whenever I was still at the sheriff's office, <laughs> uh, Chubb Anderson had just resurfaced and he disappeared for a long time. And he resurfaced uh, actually working for Ted Turner in Montana. And uh, whenever, uh, you know, he took on a whole new identity, um, he was living as a Jack Everett, and uh, he would have died as Jack Everett if this wouldn't happen, I, I fr- firmly believe. But uh, he uh, started having some medical issues and was having to be put on dialysis and he was in the hospital and, uh, you know, he gives the Jack Everett name and social security number and, and comes back, Jack died many years ago. So that was the red flag that got caught, got him caught. And uh, he wouldn't, you know, confess to who he was, they come in, fingerprint him, and bam, you know, he's wanted. You know, is in Kansas, a top 10 most wanted at one point for cultivation of marijuana. At that point, he had never been charged in Oklahoma right. for the Mollendore murder. He was always a suspect, but had never been charged. Was he ever charged for it? We'll get to that. Okay. What is the Mollendore murder case for people that's not aware of it? Uh E.C. Mollendore in um, September of 1970 uh, was a rich landowner cattle baron if you will uh mover and a shaker for his times for sure for, uh, lived on a ranch in northeastern oklahoma in southern kansas and uh, it was a family-owned ranch and uh, he was running it and um, um he was murdered one night and uh, you know it was rough times a lot of stuff going on the is very thick when you really yeah, they were having financial
1: trouble. a lot, lot of books
2: written sure. about it. Yeah, major financial issues, but but a lot of that was I was always told uh, EC was trying his best. He had dozers running around the clock clearing the country and you know building, building fences building like fence and believe. and building these ranch houses where they were feasible to live in cuz uh you know mm-hmm. it was rumored his father wasn't as caring. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um uh, so Gene was his father, what his dad went by, but uh, he he was E.C. Mollinger also. But so he got himself into a financial pickle and uh, at that time uh, started bringing some shady characters around, trying to find money and trying to find ways to make money. And uh, and ultimately, um, um, at the at the end of the day, uh, um, E.C.'s death saved the ranch, realistically, if you want to really look at it. The facts: uh, He had a fifteen million dollar life insurance policy on him, which was the largest to that date ever in America. Uh, when they computed that, when they uh, they couldn't compute that big of a figure, so they had to do three five million dollar life insurance policies, and uh, you know so there was there was a lot that went on in that situation. But E. C. Uh, or Chubb had been arrested in Montana and extradited back to Kansas. or so it was in the extradition process whenever uh, retired sheriff, George Wayman, contacted the current sheriff at that point, Ty Cook, and said, hey, Chubb's arrested. I want to go talk to him. So uh, at that point, myself and another investigator, Dwight Barnard, uh, just basically went with Chubb or he went with Sheriff Wayman to meet Chubb and, and let him talk because uh, Sheriff Wayman was always—he always said that Chubb told him that if he—if he ever found him on his deathbed, he'd tell him what happened that night. So he was hoping he was close enough into his deathbed, mm. if you will, that uh, he would talk. So that's how I got
1: involved. So he never did admit really admit anything to, to Wayman, did he? No,
2: no. He respected Wayman, I think, as a professional, but he didn't like Wayman. I mean, he cussed Wayman, you know, I've heard that many times, which he didn't respect law enforcement. Right, I mean, right. he's an outlaw, you yeah, know. sure. But he respected him. I mean, I I interviewed or was with Chubb, I think, three different times when we interviewed him, and, uh, you know, he was always very respectful and yeah. always, you know, nice guy, mm-hmm. but... uh. He was, the, he was the character that he's portrayed, I will say that.
1: Yeah. A, I can't believe they haven't made a movie out of that. There were so many different facets to that story, like Bart said, and that would make a great movie.
2: You know, and there's so much I discovered through that. Now, keep in mind, I was born in 1977. This happened in 1970. So Chubb always kind of got a little kick out of that, that I was up there working on this. I wasn't even born when it happened. Um, but what's funny is when I was born my dad worked for l and b Land and Cattle and they leased the Molendore and we lived up there northwest of Dewey when I was born and, uh, and uh, so I always thought that was kind of interesting because I always had a little bit of a um, love affair if you will of, of the Molendore and, mm-hmm. and, and you know it was, it was a very iconic location mm-hmm. and ranch and beautiful place and uh, a monster you know um, in its time
1: it was the largest singly owned ranch i mean it was him and his dad but i think it was the largest singly owned ranch in oklahoma at that time Uh, you had the little chief ranch Mm -hmm. sedan blue stem out there by the spillway and then the one up there at the headquarters you know it was a large operation your uncle joe he worked out there uncle joe was working for him when he got killed and i i'll never forget the phone call you know i was just a big kid in 70 but uh, i remember the phone call i think it was maybe a sunday morning uh, got the call that DC had been killed. I remember it like yesterday.
2: Well, in in Osage County in 1970, for a rancher to get killed, period, is news. Yeah, sure. But for the Molendor mm-hmm. ranch owner, you know, yeah. to get killed, it's just it's monstrous. I mean, um, that was one thing that I discovered through this uh, process. Uh, I guess uh, somewhat of the the blame the sheriff's office received and i'm you know maybe Mm -hmm. biased in this situation but the blame the sheriff's office received whenever they aren't to blame for a lot of it um those county sheriff's office never received a phone call of the shooting or the murder or anything i mean wrap your mind around that never right the dispatcher, at that point, the ra- they ran on 490, which was a sheriff's state of uh, radio net, and you you could hear a lot of agencies around. And the dispatcher heard Washington County Sheriff's Office dispatching out a Bartlesville Ambulance to the Mulder Ranch for a shooting. The Sosage County Dispatcher heard this and called the de- deputy on duty that was out at the Redbud Diner, that's now Subway outside of Posca, and uh, called the deputy, and that was Bill Mitchell, and said, uh, you know, hey, uh, there's supposed to be a shooting or something at the Molendor. So he was going to head up there. And uh, whenever he heads up there, he passes the ambulance leaving the ranch. EC's body's already moved. You know, so if we're going to sit here and start pointing fingers, there's fingers to be pointed many other places. And I always kind of hated that for Sheriff Wayman because a lot of people blamed him and his agency for the lack of uh, capability and all this stuff on that on that investigation.
1: I haven't read the current book, Footprints and the Dew, but I read the first book, and it starts out kind of making fun of George Wayman because he's parking cars at the funeral, you know, or helping, right, you know, right. kind of, and said, here's the, this is the biggest case, in each kind of history, and you got the sheriff parking cars, you know, that's right. the way the book started out, right. as I remember something to that effect. So they caught a lot of heat right from the get-go over
2: that. You know, and just to sum that up some more, you know, the law enforcement in 1970 is totally different than it was now. You had the same principles. Right. But how you conducted it was totally different. Mm -hmm. Um, Back then, you gathered up the local photographer, a newspaper photographer, and took them with you, and that was your crime scene photographer. I mean, you didn't even have a camera. I mean, think about this. You don't even have someone that's taking your own crime scene photos. You're hiring somebody. And his payment for this was he gets his pick, Mm -hmm. if the case will allow it, of the photo to run in the paper. So it was a very big thing for the photographer to get called. Um, Now let's back up. Bill Mitchell's running up there to see what's going on. He passes the ambulance going out. He gets up there and discovers that there's murder and the body's being transported to Bartlesville. And uh, so they was under the assumption, and the E.C. was alive. You don't transport a dead body in 1970 the same as mm-hmm. if you don't now. And that was a quote from George Wayman right there. Um, George told me one day. I know it might be bouncing around a little bit, but uh, he said if it was anybody else in 1970 that got killed, we'd solve the homicide by the sun up. And I really believe him. You know, uh, not that they were that special, but. Mm-hmm. The evidence is all there, you know, and uh, but once you move the body, you've butchered the crime scene, yep. you know, um, and, you know, uh, whenever a medic goes in and a sheriff, from another county shows up up there and is giving orders and assuming all responsibilities, that's that's a lot, you know. So uh, so to go on, Bill Mitchell calls and says, wake the sheriff up. We we got a homicide and we got a problem. So uh, Sheriff Wayman runs up there and uh, comes through, and he get uh, uh, Rudy Briggs was an investigator at that point, and uh, he was heavily involved in it, and a few others, and they gather the photo, the, the photographer, and they get there probably right before sunup. And uh, the key to the case is what Del Lewis wrote about the book title "Footprints in the Dew." That was the key to the case. Um, Chubb's story didn't match the physical evidence at the scene of the footprints in the do. And um, so ju- so Sheriff Wayman always knew Chubb was the shooter, 100%, uh, as d- did 90% of the population. There's that 10% that still thinks that someone flew in or, uh, you know, the mob did it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something else i discovered through this investigation i respect people's opinions and i respect hearing their stories and i appreciate hearing their their side of things but one thing i discovered is everybody has somebody that's connected to the mullendores that told them a story of mm-hmm. what happened and yep. this is the facts you right know.
1: So right sure it's uh you know it's yeah. always interesting to hear all those twists but uh well del court was the ranch manager you know when they were having this financial trouble they brought him in to either fix it or stop the bleeding or whatever but and he lived was he was right next door wasn't he fairly close um yes he was at yeah. the ranch manager's house
2: which is on the north side the the, the residents kind of play out in a triangle the mm-hmm. furthest west house is Mister mr and mrs Molendor's right. house the north house was del court who was the ranch manager then the east house would be the the pool house where yeah. where, Chuck, where ec was and um that night You know, we later, I interviewed Dale Court, and um, I have interviewed everybody that was alive at that Mm -hmm. point. And it was was a fascinating uh, uh, experience, I'll I'll, I'll say that. Um, But, um, you know, that night, hearing Dale's recollection of it still to this day um, impacts me a little bit. He uh, absolutely, to his death, Dale's past now, believed that Chubb was innocent. And the reason he believed Chubb was innocent was the, the facts that took place that night. Um, he's, uh, he said he, he was there at his house, he and his wife and had a newborn baby. And, uh, Chubb comes beating on the door. And this is, you know, early in the, I mean, it's after midnight and, uh, and, uh, he wakes up and, you know, and he opens the door and, and, uh, Chubb shot, he's holding his shoulder and he's bleeding, you know, and he's obviously stressed. And, uh, and he says, Dale, get your gun. Come with me. Uh, they've shot. They've, they've shot EC is what he said. And uh, I mean, Dale, after he's a ranch manager. All right. You know, right. this is the most shocking thing he's ever experienced in his life. Right. And uh, when I was interviewing him, watching him relive that moment, I mean, he, he would start start shaking and just start kind of stuttering over it. And I mean, uh, just it, it impacted him. It impacted him to his death. And uh, he, he said he grabbed a 22 rifle and had a handful of shells, and he said, I was trying to put shells in this gun, and I'm dropping more than I'm putting in the gun. And he hands it to his wife, who's holding the baby, because mm-hmm. everyone's up at this point, and says, point that gun at that door and shoot anybody that comes through it. I mean, that's his mindset, because mm-hmm. he's getting ready to run with mm-hmm. Chubb back to the house to render aid and whatever mm-hmm. else. So he, so Chubb, or uh, Court jumps in his truck, and chubb runs back he ran to and ran back it's probably a hundred yards apart maybe I mean, they're right next to each other but they're a little distance well dale jumped in his truck drives down there drives around and shines some light on the pool house <clears throat> and uh, and uh, you know he just kept talking about how chubb was bleeding and you know they'd shot him and and dale goes in and uh And, uh, you know, EC's dead, but he doesn't really know if he's dead. He just knows it's a bad situation. So at that point, you know, we talked earlier about the ranch being in financial situations. The phones were shut off for lack of payment. So they had no way of calling help. Um, So they left. Uh, Chubb said, I've got to go to the hospital. I've I've got to get this fixed or get this looked at. So he takes off. Then Dell leaves. And uh, Dale had to actually go down to um, a neighboring ranch down on Mission Creek Road and gets there. And no one's home, breaks into the house to go use the phone, calls off, op- you know, call. didn't even have 911 at this point. You call the operator. I need the sheriff's office or I need an ambulance. And they got ambulance dispatched up there. And, um, you know, that was the beginning of the, the beginning of the turmoil of the mm. investigation, you know, um, the stage was the scene was staged is what sheriff wayman always said uh, you know when you showed up you know chubb's story was that he and ec was in the house and um he was upstairs drawing a bath and he heard a noise goes downstairs and the stairwell was l l-shaped stair and he goes downstairs and um sees ec leaning against the couch you know shot bleeding Dead at that point. And uh, he felt a sting, he said. He fell to his knees. He gets up and sees two men running up the stairs. So the sting was the gunshot, is what he claims. So he jumps up and pursues, runs through the house. You can see blood trail running through the house. Um, Goes out to the patio area that was sliding glass doors. And fires shots at the sliding glass doors shooting at the suspects. Then he runs out on the patio and fires some shots out there as the suspects fled north through that field, allegedly. And this was Mm -hmm. the hang-up. There was no footprints in the zoo where these suspects ran. Just chubs. And if you line those doors up where the bullets went through the door and the window on those double-sliding doors, there's only about that much room. So he didn't really line that up right. Mm-hmm. So the doors were open, but not open enough probably for two guys to run through it. So it, it created doubt. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Chubb was already a felon. I mean, he'd been to prison for stealing livestock. Uh, and, uh, you know, and he was a shady character at that point. So he was always the prime suspect mm-hmm. in Sheriff Wayman's eyes in the sheriff's
1: investigation. Chubb was a personable kind of a guy. You know, I I worked with him on a barn one time. Nice guy to be around, you know. But he just had that little bit about him, you know. I always say the eyes are the windows to the soul. Uh I've
2: interviewed, I've seen some bad guys Mm -hmm. in my lifetime, and you look in their eyes and you see it. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to tell you, Chubb, to me, had that look, and I only knew him as an older man. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But but he was also uh, very... uh, um, he was a ladies' man. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, a lot of women. I mean, everywhere. I mean, when he got arrested, he had a girlfriend up in Montana. You know, there's stories about that. <laughs> when know. he was
0: about to die on his deathbed, he exactly. had like a 20-year-old exactly. girlfriend he living was, with him. You no, know, he yeah. was married. He was a nice, okay, guy. Yeah. nice-looking guy in his younger
2: days. You know, so I mean, he—he uh, he was a character, and you know. But one thing I was told through this whole investigation, I never found one person that ever told me that they ever seen him drink or drunk.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, I'm sure he liked to smoke a little marijuana because he... liked to grow it. <laughs> he sure loved to grow it because that's what he ultimately got right. charged with in Kansas and went to prison for. Right. But, um, but I always thought that was fascinating because he, uh, mm-hmm. EC, you yep. know, at that point uh, was drinking a lot. And, and Chubb basically just went with him to keep him
1: out of trouble. Right. That was that was Chubb's job. Well, uh, you know, <clears throat> I knew Dale Court. We built a barn for him up in Thayer, Kansas, about five years after that. And we were up there on a Monday after the long weekend, and he come out and he said, Wayman, come to see me this weekend. And uh, I said, oh yeah, he did, huh? And he said, uh, yeah, he wanted to talk about the case. He said, he still thinks Chubb did it. <laughs> and I thought, boy, that just set me back because everything points to Chubb. But here's the guy that was closest, close to the situation, right. lived right next door, first guy to see Chubb after it happened, and then, yet he thought it was comical that George Wayman was still pursuing the Chubb angle. So that always shocked me, but you're telling me that he was just so shook up. I think so, and he worked with him.
2: I mean, yeah. he trusted him. He yeah, believed you, sure. you know, and he truly believed that that uh, you know whatever happened happened. But he mm-hmm. didn't think Chubb did it. <laughs> what what did an interesting know. case,
0: right there. Oh, <laughs> He's it, captured it, it's captured the it's imagination so many, of yeah. America That's uh, why uh, two or three I, different times. It, well, it needs and, to be a movie. You know, and reminds me of Yellowstone a little bit <laughs> when we talk about it
2: the botching of the investigation here right. i am i don't want to just sound like i'm sitting right, right. defending george wayman but there's right. so much i feel like needs aired because i think i told you this earlier mm-hmm. if you google mold or murder mm-hmm. you see um the uh, wikipedia page. wikipedia mm-hmm. the wikipedia gives a synopsis mm-hmm. and in there but they're basically jabbing at the botched crime scene and so forth and i'm sitting here going you well, I like don't a, really even understand. Like, it was a botched crime scene, but not because right.
1: of, you know, certain people. But like I said, that first book that I read. Yes. That's the angle they pursued. Yes. All the way through, it seemed like.
0: <clears throat> well, it's it's obvious that Washington County came and messed it all up.
1: Was there anything well, to the story about the bone
2: on the hat? Uh, that was always talked about. And that was one of those things that I later figured out Chubb liked to talk. Mm-hmm and i think he liked to kind of twist stories to fit however he wanted the uh, the story to sound also i truly felt mm-hmm. that um allegedly I'll, I'll get to that here in a second but uh one last thing i want to uh, another thing i want to say one day finally ambulance gets a ec to the hospital uh chubb makes it to dewey and can't make it any further and, mm-hmm. uh, and a police officer actually gets him and loads him up and takes him to the hospital and uh uh, sheriff wayman shows up at the hospital and he sees he's already dead so he goes to arnold moore now you know mm-hmm. this isn't csi right and it definitely wasn't 1970 so he goes to arnold moore who was a funeral home director over there you know for years and says uh, i want you to um, bag his hands because back then you got paper sack and you bagged their hands mm-hmm. and they did a paraffin test uh, that's equivalent to what a gunshot residue—it's uh, GSR test mm-hmm. nowadays—but uh, he wanted to do a paraffin test to see if he'd shot, and uh, and he said, you know, and they were going to get photos and 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 uh, uh, of the body. And uh, his photographer—he had his photographer—he took many photos, and what's crazy is not one of them ever developed. I mean, mm-hmm. the crime scene photos of the body never developed. Uh, just bad film, just just bad luck. it's deeper and deeper, Jimbo. You know? Well, then know. Arnold Moore knows the you know Mollendorfs are paying for this funeral, yeah, and that's wants, a dream. Wants there. to create, a, you know, wants to make them very happy. Right. So he washes the body, cleans him up, so the family could come identify him, and just absolutely botch the physical evidence on the on the uh, yeah. on the body, you know. And Wayman was still sheriff William was still upset about that you know and it's just everything that could go wrong seemed like it went wrong at that mm-hmm. point
1: so supposedly when gene walked in and chubb was in the hospital he said something like gene don't tell on me or something have you heard that story I heard that
2: story uh
1: the bone ship you're talking about
2: ec was pistol whipped mm-hmm. and uh, some people Claim that he the pistol whipping of, of him was probably enough for him to die, mm-hmm. but he ended up receiving a gunshot wound, that mm-hmm. actually, what killed him. Um, and and uh, so, in the pistol whipping, the cast off, allegedly a bone fragment, skull fragment, landed on Chubb's hat. And uh, allegedly, I mean, none of this is sure. allegedly a deputy saw it and was playing with it and lost the hat, you know, and they didn't hmm. even know there was a bone chip. Right, rat. they were I mean, playing around with Chubb's hat. Yeah, allegedly. And supposedly and,
1: uh, the bone chip you know, fell off I, I and it'll never
2: be found. Yeah, I don't know if that was true. I mean, uh, to me, that would be a key piece. Right. Um, I know, uh, you know, he also claimed that in the hat band of the, his hat was Linda's number, because Linda gave mm-hmm. him his number, and, uh, and um, you know... Again, uh, some things I think he liked to kind of toy with, you know, if you would listen, he'd tell you a story. Mm-hmm. You really mm-hmm. had to figure out if the story was right. Right. You know, but, uh, he was interesting for sure.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know, that guy did live a co- colorful life. Even when he's on the run, oh, yeah. he went to work for Ted Turner up there. And, uh, you know, the lady that took care of him right before he died, her name, uh, is Margaret bird. She's in this book. She became a friend of mine through a mm-hmm. business that I have here in town. And, uh, She brought me all of Chubb's old stuff from when he was on the run as Jack Everett. Um, I got all kinds of checks and all kinds Mm -hmm. of different things as Jack Everett and a business card, a welding business card. He can weld anything but a broken heart. (laughs) is what it said on the business card. But the most interesting thing out of all of it was uh, there was a picture of him up there at Ted Turner's standing there with Mikhail Gorbachev. Wow. The leader of Russia. He wow. was there for okay. something yeah. to do with Ted Turner. and uh, yeah, He allowed himself to be photographed. That's kind of odd, you know, because I've seen pictures of
1: him with uh, deer. I can't remember if that a uh, mule deer or yeah, elk hunting. or something, you know. Yeah, he was a hunting guy. He was a big time hunter. And would. He, he would take, uh, I mean, government officials,
2: state officials, mm-hmm. governors, senators on, on mountain lion hunts in Montana mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. was
1: very, everyone liked him. I mean, he yeah. was a very likable Yeah, he was guy. a likable kind of a guy. But I knew his brother-in-law, Lonnie, or ex-brother-in-law, and uh, I worked with him for a couple years. And uh, now he's kind of, you know, I don't even want to get into all that, but, <laughs> but I, like, I considered him a friend, you know. But the only thing he ever mentioned about the Mondor case, the, when I worked with Lonnie, was they said when they took Chubb to the hospital, he was shot through the shoulder, and he ran a, put a piece of gauze on a rod and ran it through his shoulder, and changed it and put a clean piece on the other side and pulled it back through. Wow, you know, is what Chubb told him. That always just kind of, yeah, no, that uh, his injury. I mean, it was it was a close
2: gunshot to the shoulder. Yep. Um uh, The um, stippling around the wound, you can see that there's a lot of gunpowder, which meant unburnt gunpowder that uh, caused mm-hmm. uh, by it being close to the mm-hmm. when, body when it was shot. So it was a through and through shot, and yep. uh, probably the you know.
1: That was the only time, as far as I remember, that was the only time Lonnie ever mentioned anything about the Mondor deal was about him cleaning that wound. That's that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Because
2: Lonnie was young at that
1: point. Yeah, yeah. He was was about 26 when I went to work for him or with him, and that was in 76, I think. Yeah, I think
2: he was was 18, 19, 20 or something when this happened. Because, see, he was a hay hand, worked at the ranch, Mm -hmm. and had just recently been fired.
1: Yeah, yeah. And
0: Lonnie Brown was married to Delbert Cotter's sister, Helen Small world out there. Small world. It's a small world. And a very interesting story. I mean, there's definitely more than one book written on this murder, and it's captured the nation's imagination more than once. There's a guy that goes around selling books to this day. That's what he does for a living. Didn't
1: didn't you meet enough contacts here to put a movie together, get somebody talking (laughs) to a movie? Good
0: grief. (laughs) i stayed far away from the movie, folks, as
1: possible.
2: You asked earlier if he was ever charged. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, in November, I forget the year. It was probably two thousand nine. Um, I don't know exactly. It's whenever uh, Chubb was arrested or uh, and brought back uh, to Kansas. Then he was already sent to prison, and he was serving his Kansas sentence at this point um, through this investigation that Reed uh, redeveloped. You know, which ultimately is the the second book, the Footprints in the Dew. Um, I. Uh, sheriff ty cook and i you know worked this a lot and and uh, we ended up uh, the district attorney was larry stewart at that point larry stewart had been the da for a long time and uh, larry was involved in this and uh, and larry was getting ready to retire and uh, charges was filed to larry for murder one on chubb anderson there was enough physical there was enough evidence years later to at least was trying to get him indicted and because um, a lot of new evidence had surfaced through this and uh so he you know affidavits for arrest warrant a case report was put together and uh and uh, larry stewart uh, you know received it didn't necessarily file it he received it and he told me he said he said bart it's not fair for me to file this case and make the next district attorney it. he goes I, I i won't hang on to it and i think the next da that's coming in january 1 which had been rex duncan needs to look at it and he can file it if he wishes to file it so it was never filed and within that window chubb died um you know without a doubt in my heart 110 percent, chubb anderson killed ec molydera
0: it's pretty big words right there, Jimbo. I mean, good enough for me. We can go on all day about this case. I know. There's just so many twists to it. The there's a couple other cases I wanted to talk to about. Yeah, I know. The mafia was involved. Yeah, I mean. Uh, maybe an affair with Linda. Just Holy moly. Just, More twists and turns and things. That's and, why it make a great movie. And everybody does have a story around here about yeah, it. Oh, don't and they, they don't. still talk about them to this day. Right. So that's really something. Well, Jimbo, what what else do you got for Bart today? Oh, just thank him for coming in. You know, we've had probably a few outlaws on this show, but that's he's the first lawman we've ever had. We had to have a special agreement for us all to sit down with me to be here today with Bart and him not try to to do a shakedown on me. Kind of like that outlaws and lawmen reunion over there
1: they have at Willow Rock. They used to be. Same, kind of yeah, same, same concept. Same concept we're using
0: today to, with, with me and
2: Bart right, in the same right. room. See, I was always told that the outlaws got like an hour head start to leave before the lawmen. Can
1: right. Leave, right. So. I don't right. well, no, The shakedown might still happen, Cody. Yeah, Yep. Yeah. But, uh, we're just glad to have him. And, uh, I would want to warn anybody that gets thinking they want to get out here in the countryside around this, of the country, jacking around and stealing, and they better think twice about it because old Bart'll get them.
0: You know, your three-time great-grandpa, first judge in this area. <sighs> Doesn't the place you live on, isn't that y'all's original uh, Osage Indian allotment land? Yes, that's where I grew
2: up, and I live there now. And it was only 240 acres of the, I think it's 550-something that they were allotted, all original lottees. And my great-grandpa Lee, he went by in the allotment book, he was Leo Perrier. Um, his saddle is on display in Spurs here in the museum. He, uh, it's his allotment place. And, uh, so yeah, we still live on our original Indian tribal allotment land. And we do
0: got the saddle that, that is, uh, what's it great grandpa. Yes. My great grandpa rode at the Dewey roundup. Yep. Wow. C.P. And it's in great condition. I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Is it's it? awesome. I'll show yeah. it to you in a little bit. Yeah. C.P. CP shipley saddle. And, uh,
2: you know, what's crazy. I mean, it's old but i think i would almost saddle it up and get
1: on it i mean it's in that kind yeah. of shape yeah, it's, it's yeah i think i saw it when you brought it in it's yeah man. pretty impressive old saddle you know you know that's the way the saddles look you know these old westerns they have the the old low back saddles like we ride now you know, a lot of these old westerns you know but those old saddles had a unique look to them you know and and uh you can pick one
0: out for sure it's definitely the real deal y'all been involved with uh The law around here in Osage County, since its inception, since it was Indian territory, well, that's really something for your three-time great grandpa to be judge right here—the first one appointed—and and and you're you're still a lawman right here in this same area, right? That's really something to me, Jimbo. It really is, you know. That's that's special, you know, and and a, a great, like I said earlier, just a great historic Osage County family. Now he's working for the historic. Southwestern Rangers down there protecting livestock. Don't get any more cowboy than that. I just want to know one thing. You ever got it on your mind to, to, to come home, be the sheriff of this county? That
2: was always a goal. It was definitely a goal before I went to work where I'm at now. And uh, I think it will be safe to say I would like to retire into my law enforcement career probably in that position, yes.
1: I'll come that back. That sounds almost like somebody threw their hat in the ring. Almost sounds like
0: almost. it. Almost. actually answer. doing it. It's a good politician answer. Right. <laughs> sounds like he's, uh has his eyes on that sheriff office one of these days. One of these days. I think he'd be a great one, Jimbo. I do, too. I be him. We'd be lucky to have him, and I think uh, he follow the principles that we want to follow from before statehood all the way through now i know it. he's got the blueprint laid out for him by his great 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 grandfather that's right peter perrier boy that guy was something else he was he was a striking looking guy wasn't he oh yeah i'm gonna have lauren put up that uh picture of him right here at the end of the video well bart we sure appreciate you coming in opening up about some of those cases uh we didn't know if you were going to talk about them or not we were definitely going to ask you about them so thank you for all that and uh Thank you for keeping us safe around here. We appreciate yes, it. For sure. You're welcome. Thanks, Thanks for having it. me. and I Brand think you all, your cattle. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Please brand your cattle. But I think you all do a great job and keep up the good work. Um, Thank you. Be sure and catch us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcast, and also right here at the Ben Johnson Cowboy Museum Facebook. Every Thursday, we got a new edition of the Cowboys of the Osage Podcast. Well, until next week, this has been a good one. Thank you, guys. Thank you.